At SEO Uncovered, we are on a mission to bring you the people who have the insight experience to help you become your very best self. Today, we are fortunate to have another person such as Ryan Hawk, the host of The Learning Leader Show. He has recorded more than 500 episodes over the past eight years, and it's been called the most dynamic leadership podcast around. After starting as quarterback at the University of Ohio, Ryan worked in corporate America for 12 years. Ryan is also the author of books, Welcome to Management and The Pursuit of Excellent, The Uncommon Behaviors of the World's Most Productive Achievers. Please welcome our next guest, Ryan. Hey. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Ashley. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I always start with a pretty loaded question. <laughs> Who is Ryan to you? I know many people have answers rather than my generic bio. Uh, well, I guess I think first and foremost, what I think about most is is being uh, trying to be a really good husband and a great dad. Uh, so that's who I am, and, and I focus probably the majority of my life thinking about that as a way of supporting my family and hopefully trying to inspire them a little bit. I record podcast conversations with the world's most effective leaders and have been doing that for the past eight years with the hope of following my genuine curiosity with great rigor. And by doing that, it seems to have produced useful content for others to help better their lives. And so pointing back to that kind of inspiring element as a husband and a dad, I think charting out in the world to try to help other people as a way of providing for my family, I think is a bit different and cool. And uh, I had, I did the corporate life for 12 years. I know what that's like. I understand how to get promoted and how to provide from that perspective. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, my dad did it his entire career and it's awesome, but um, I'm just trying to go about it a little bit different way of running my own show and trying to serve whoever um, is listening uh, as best as I can to, to hopefully make their lives a little bit better. So that's what I've been doing for the past eight years and, and certainly having a lot of fun while I'm at it. Was there something that sparked your passion for entrepreneurship? I don't think so. It was really, uh, I had no intentions. Uh, I don't think if you did any of the assessments, I've taken the one from the traction group and um, I don't score very high on entrepreneurship. I'm more of the person who would probably work for a company his entire career. However, uh, in the midst of doing that, as I mentioned for 12 years, the the market uh, had told me enough times that we want you to work with us in other capacities such as keynote speaking or one-on-one -on -one, um, advising or helping uh, companies and teams build out leadership development programs. Uh, and I eventually built off other services from there. But mm -hmm. if you're told that enough times from the market, I mean, I started listening and then started doing it. And so really just stumbled into the, to the element of starting my own business. I didn't have any intentions to, I didn't have a dream for that. I didn't set any goals. It was really about the thing I wanted to do most was have deeply interesting conversations with people I found fascinating. And as a result of doing that hundreds of times, then the business was built off the back of that. So uh, really, it was just about listening and about then uh, having a decision to make, do I want to keep doing it on the side as I, as I was when I started, or do I want to give 100% of my effort to the business elements of what initially was just a podcast and then all yeah. of the services that were built from there? So it was really about um, just kind of listening and then, and then responding. Mm -hmm. When did you start podcasting? What was the first time that you did it and 
What is the Learning Leader Show about? Can you describe? Yeah, I started um, all of the early stage working on it at the end of 2014. We launched the sh first episode in 2015. At the same time, I was working in a corporate America job as a director level at a company called LexisNexis. So I was doing this on the side for fun. And it started because I'd gone back to school after graduating um, and got my MBA. And my company had what a lot of companies do. They they reimbursed me for all of the, the cost to, to go back to college to get my mm -hmm. MBA. And so that was a great perk. And I thought, well, I should keep going to school beyond my MBA because I get all of the money reimbursed. It's essentially like a scholarship like I had when I went to undergraduate to play football. And but I didn't love all the elements of of getting my MBA. I didn't get to choose my classes, right? They told me I had to, had to take all these on this list in order to get the certification of a master's of business administration. And so I thought, is there a better way to, to almost create my own form of a leadership PhD program? Because that's what I was most curious about, having led on the football field for many years and mm -hmm. was leading in the corporate world. So I led in multiple places. I wanted to learn more about it because I wanted to get better at it. And so that's how the Learning Leaders Show started was to try to form and create my own leadership PhD program, but do it in public and publish those conversations so that other people could learn along with me, as well as um, creating a platform, uh, I thought, gave me a better opportunity to speak with some of the world's most interesting leaders, mm -hmm. more so than just sending them an email and asking if they would take my call. And I think that's that turned out to be the case and still is to this day. So it's really the show is, is all about me finding people who I find deeply interesting, uh, who are effective leaders, and then uh, doing a, a lot of research on each of them and having a conversation after that, and then publishing those. So it's a really wide variety of people, whether yeah. they're uh, special forces operators, professional athletes, CEOs, entrepreneurs, best selling authors, everything in between. I like a diversity of thought and like having a wide variety of people. And so that's mm -hmm. what I try to do. I know when I started podcasting, one of my biggest challenges was getting people in, reaching out. How did you start that process? Just a billion cold emails. I mean, I'm used to sending cold emails because of uh, in the sales world, which is what I worked at LexisNexis, my entry-level job. I was both cold calling and cold emailing all day, every day. Um, I was selling new business, so I was having to find people that used our competitor and convince them to switch to us. Um, and it was a very commoditized product at the time. So it depended on us hustling and working hard. Mm -hmm. And so I, I learned from mentors and others how to write compelling cold emails, as well as make compelling cold calls. And I think dealing with um, rejection and being ignored a lot became just a normal part of my day. So it was nothing for me to send 20 to 30 to 40 personalized, not canned copy and paste, but personalized cold emails every single day at the start. And by doing that, there would be some days where I would get no responses or all rejections. But every once in a while, I might get one or two or three. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, I've got, I've got some pretty notable people that are on the show very early on um, without having to like wait to build up much of a show before getting them on. And I think that helped propel and lead to the next one. And it still works that way. The yeah. one guest can lead to the next. And, and a lot of them, if you do a good job, they'll tell you, tell their friends. And then I have another avenue to have people on the show. So the, the beginning, like most things, was the hardest. And it still is hard at times. But I would say having that experience uh, with cold outreach is was super helpful for me at the beginning. Mm-hmm. What has been your, your most rewarding moment or time as hosting the podcast? 
I think the relationships you build with people, so uh, two sides of that, one with your, your guest. So, for example, um, General Stanley McChrystal, American hero. He led 150,000 troops. He was in charge of Iraq and Afghanistan and all that we did there. And it was chaotic and really hard. He wrote a great book called Team of Teams. And I read a lot about him and learned a lot about him and really admire General McChrystal. I had him on the show. It went really well. We kind of hit it off. And afterwards, he asked me if I wanted to be his guest when he took his class. He teaches a leadership class at Yale to take his class uh, from Yale to Gettysburg to tour all of the notable battles from uh, at Gettysburg. And I'd never been there before. And I thought this is this is an amazing opportunity. So I went and spent two days with him and his class. A few other guests came as well, all like very almost famous people from all over the world and then he somehow i was in there i was the uh uh felt a huge imposter syndrome during that trip but it was neat because he treated me just like uh any of my other friends do and so then i get to go and spend two days and and have general mccrystal being the teacher at each of the battlefield sites telling me about it it was amazing at the end of it i thought like what the hell i'll just go for it and i asked him i said hey i'm um i'm finishing up my first book it's called welcome to management I would love it if you would uh, maybe even think about writing the foreword to the book. I think you could really add to it. And he said, yes, and he did. And so I think that part of it was is really neat that you, you form these real genuine relationships with people who are heroes of yours. That's the first part of the relationship element. And then the second part of that is uh, relationships you build with people who listen to the show and who reach out and say that it's impacted their life in a positive way. And sometimes those people become clients, they become friends. All of that, it, it all kind of works together. So I think just the, the overall thing I'm, I'm most proud of, the thing I'm kind of think is the coolest part about it is the fact that these relationships that uh, I did not have before are now some of the most yeah. uh, enjoyable ones for me. It's awesome that you got to experience and go. I've never been there myself and I've always wanted to. It's very cool. Speaking of writing did you always want to write a book or did, was this something that you never thought you were going to do uh writing is not a natural thing for me uh i think it's it's tough my first drafts are are usually pretty terrible and that is that's hard if you look at read your first drafts and you think they are not good it's not the most motivating thing to want to keep going mm-hmm. with that said again much like everything else with this business, uh, I would go speak or I would do other things. And after the speak, they'd say, Hey, you know, I want to buy your book or what is your book called? And I'd say, I don't have a book. I haven't written a book. So I was listening to the market a little bit. And then I had built up all of this data and knowledge from hundreds of episodes. And I had not really published much from that other than the podcast and the show notes. So it was a combination of a few things. One, the market. Two, I had had a lot I was sitting on. And three, I was thinking about what's the book I wish I would have had at some part in my career. And I remember vividly that time when I was promoted from individual contributor to first-time manager, and I was really bad at it. And I I struggled for quite some time. And most people do. It's hard. It's Mm -hmm. a hard jump. And so I thought like that book of that welcome to management moment would be uh, would have been useful for me to have. And so I tried my best to write the book that I needed to have at a critical point in my career when I really struggled. And so far, um, that book doing so well then gave me the second and and now multiple book deals since then from the same publisher, McGraw-Hill. So 
I like the act of writing because I think writing clarifies your thinking. And I think all leaders should have a writing practice, whether they decide to publish or not. Um, we all should be writing all the time mm -hmm. because it gets the thoughts from our mind to the page. And we don't fully know what you think until until you've had to clearly define that. And usually the best way to do that is by writing it down. So I would say I don't think you really fully know what you believe and what you think until you, you write it down. And so uh, if you have these huge projects where people are paying you book advances and they expect it to be good, uh, that is a great clarifier. And I think to me, I'll probably continue to do that just for the simple fact that I want to be a clear thinker and writing is yeah. the best tool for that. How important, in your opinion, is storytelling for business and life, creating connections? It's everything. I mean, the people who he or she who tells the best stories will win. It, it doesn't. Stories are so much more compelling than than data or facts or numbers or statistics. Mm -hmm. uh, just look at any keynote speech that you remember. Look at anything, any event that you've been to that you actually remember when you left. Uh, I doubt you remember any of the facts. I doubt you remember any graphs, any data, any numbers. I promise you probably remember compelling stories. So yeah. that applies to everything. And so uh, that's another thing I really work hard with leaders on that I work with is we're always going to be honing our stories and how we communicate with our teams. When you look at the list of, of things needed to be an effective leader, it's, it's, right, it's right at the top. As we know, the podcast is geared towards high school students. A lot of them at that time are public speaking, maybe for the first time. Do you have any tips for them if they have are anxious about public speaking in front of class or for their first job? I would actually think of a, what we just talked about. I would open fast with a story every time. You're going to grab the – like Ryan Holly has told me multiple times. He read my first draft of my first book, and – the way the book was structured at the time, the beginning was actually kind of boring. It was like laying the foundation. And he said, on page six, that's where you really grabbed him with that story. So take that story from page six and move it to page one. And I actually did that. I changed the thing because I was trying to kind of grab you by the throat. As he said, the same thing in keynote speaking, it's very similar. So if you're a high school student and you want to make a difference or you want to not be boring when most speakers are boring, immediately don't say, oh, thank you. It's so good to see you. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Don't say any of that stuff. Open with a story like from the very first second that you're standing up in front of your class. And you get to choose what that is, whether it's about you or it's about somebody else or you got it, it needs to tie in with whatever the theme or the message that you're sharing. Right? Don't tell just a random story, but start with that and then get to the other stuff. Even the people who feel like they need to introduce themselves, don't do that. You can introduce yourself after the story. Nobody really cares who you are anyway. So go up there and just immediately launch into it. Matthew Dix and I did an episode and He's, he's really good at this. He's a storytelling champion, 57-time Moth storytelling champion. So he really knows what he's talking about. Every time he talks, that's how he starts. So think of forward motion. Think of action. Think of going immediately to a place when you're launching into whatever your speech is. And then if you got to like fill in the blanks, do that after the fact. But you've already mm -hmm. got your audience, and that's really what you need because, unfortunately – you go up and listen to most speakers, they will. They think they have to do all of the boring stuff first. You don't. There are no yeah. rules with that. You can do the most exciting thing first, grab them, and then get to the rest later if you have to at all. But I think that's mm -hmm. that's what I would say that that I think a lot of us mess up when we're less experienced is we feel yeah. like we can't do that, but, but you certainly can. How do you define leadership? 
I think great leadership is the art of getting people to want to do what must be done. So what that means to me is the art of, so it's an art, there's a lot of that that plays into it, but it's of getting people. So you ha I think you get people to do things because of your character, because of your behavior, because of your actions to want to do, right? So your behaviors and actions are so inspiring. It, it may not only get someone to do it, it gets them to want to do it, right? So that they're much more committed and compelled versus just complying, right? Compliant. I don't think in a job in the real world, you a manager can force someone to comply, but they can't get somebody to commit. They have to earn that. So it's the art of getting somebody to want to do what must be done. And the second part is of you know as a leader what must be done. That's the strategic element. That's the part where you have to be thoughtful and understanding and have a vision, have a direction, all of that is part of it. So to me, I think great leaders are the best at, at getting people to want to do what must be done. You're the head of Brexian Myers Leadership Advisory Practice. I wanted to know what your role is and what does a day-to-day -day look like to you? I do not work there. Uh, that was a few years ago, but uh, that's fine. So day-to-day -day, though, what, what it looks like for me is I mean, I'm really doing a lot of this. I'm having deep, long-form conversations with fascinating people, whether I'm recording them on a microphone or not. Sometimes mm -hmm. we are, sometimes I'm not. But the primary foundational element of everything I do is on my podcast. That's where everything comes from. So I'm, I'm usually either preparing for that or doing that. And each episode usually is eight to 10 hours worth of preparation minimum of reading books, watching every video about them on YouTube, uh, everything they've ever written and everything ever written about them, and then forming my outline, which takes a, quite a long time to do. That's a big part of it. But then in addition to that, you know, the services that I provide beyond that. So keynote speaking, I'm always preparing for the next one and customizing that and building the deck and practicing and rehearsing the talk. I run leadership circles, which are paid mastermind groups. So I'm always preparing for the next one of those. I have multiple groups going at once. So preparing for those and then doing those and same way with keynote speeching, preparing for them and then doing those. I have a few one-on-one -on -one clients, so I'm preparing for those and then doing those. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always writing. So that that's a big part of it. So every morning I write um, and I have a chunk of every morning after my workout, I write. So there's two different times to write, but I think, because I think writing is the ultimate clarifier. So every day is a little bit different, but those are the core things that I think about and do the most, which I'm super grateful for because all of them are, are pretty cool. Has there been a biggest challenge in your career thus far? And if so, how did you overcome it? Well, yeah, I mean, I mentioned before that that critical point in my career when I got promoted for the first time. I mean, I'm, I haven't been fired from a job or anything, so I guess that would make a better story. But mm -hmm. I would say I was really bad at that job initially. It took me a while, uh, probably more than a year, to get good at like actually leading a team and knowing what to do and not being selfish and being a good team player, collaborating with others. I mean, I think that I was I'm, come from a very competitive background and not that I'm not competitive, but I, I think I understood that everybody would be better off. I would be better off if I learned to to work with others better than I had done in the corporate world. And so I just struggled with that and made bad decisions, made bad choices, wasn't a great communicator. And I just had to kind of figure those things out. And luckily it was surrounded by a great boss and a good team of mentors to help me, but that that definitely took um, it took some time uh, to get good at that. That's again, that's why I, I wanted to write about that that moment mm -hmm. in my career because I, I feel like it's pretty normal for us for people to struggle, but when they make that first leap. Yeah, I wanted to ask you since you were an athlete in college, what were your thoughts on the NCAA changing its rules to now allow 
athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness at such a young age. Yeah, I remember when when I was in um, fourth grade, my younger brother was in second grade, my dad sat us down and he, he told us, when you guys go to college and you play sports, you're going to get paid. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And so he he had thought, like, it's just way, way overdue. And this was a long time ago when I was in fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And so to think about the fact that it was always coming, it was always about to happen, and now finally these student athletes are treated like every other student for the first time. Uh, any other student in college can make money from their name, image, and likeness. The only ones who were not allowed were, were athletes. It literally made no sense um, that every other student on campus could go make money and they're not allowed. So um, I think it's great. I think it, it makes sense. Um, obviously, whenever there's money involved, um, you, you hope that there's good support systems in place. And from what I've seen, it sounds like a lot of the schools are trying to provide that for them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as I said, it was my dad thought it would happen when we went to school. If that was the case, my brother would have made a lot of money. Uh, and it was not the case. We made zero dollars other than our scholarships. But I'm happy that they get it now because it, it really just puts them on the same level yeah. playing field as every other college student. Especially long overdue. It was a lot of stories I've heard is that either it was under the table or not right or sitting well with the athlete. And I'm glad now they can profit as well as get that business financial literacy background that they'll need when they do have the money. And that's kind of where we're trying to help them succeed. Yeah. Lastly, I always ask this, if you could give a piece of advice to a teenage or high school version of yourself, what would you tell him today? I was talking years ago with a leadership hero of mine named Jim Collins. Jim Collins wrote the book called Good to Great, which is an awesome book. Uh, It was one of the first ones that I'd ever read because I was not a reader when I was younger. And I was going on and on with Jim, uh, telling him all about what I was doing and why I was doing it and how I was going about building the thing that I was building. And in his nature, he was great. He patiently listened. He's like, and then afterwards, he's like, slow down a little bit, man. He goes, that's all great. And what you're doing is awesome and your why is strong. All that's great. But the single greatest determining factor in your long-term success or failure is your who. Who will be your friends? Who will be your partner? Who will you surround yourself with? That's what you need to focus on more so than anything else. Think about that first. That's your foundation. Who's your kitchen cabinet, right? Who are those people you can go to? When I was in high school and when I was in college, I did not think about that at all. I thought about myself. I thought about my career. I thought about me getting our team wins, right? It was really focused on me. And I know growing up, like that was just the way it was, how I saw the world. And it was a giant mistake um, Mm -hmm. to not like reach out and try to develop real deep relationships. Like I have good friends. I still talk to some of those guys. I still like my college roommates, like all that. But like, I wasn't that intentional about building my who. I wasn't, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even know that that was a thing. And I did not go out of my way or try at all to develop or form any deep relationships with people other than just kind of the casual friends that that most college kids do. And to me, that was just immature, uh, not very wise, not thinking long-term, not thinking ahead. And maybe that's just how it is for kids. I don't know. I've met some high school and college kids that are not like that at all. They are fully wise to their who, and they're awesome about it. I can think of some of them right now. I'm blown away by how much further ahead. But to me, that would be the piece of advice, which is 
like focus on your who think about that um build deep meaningful long-form relationships with people um that will give you a best shot for things to go well and it's just a more fulfilling and enjoyable way to live life so i would yeah. i would say in a long way focus on your who i love that well thank you ryan for coming on and sharing your journey it was awesome and i'm sure our students are really going to enjoy hearing about it yeah absolutely thanks for having me